Chapter Three B of Roderick Hudson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. One of them was an American sculptor of French extraction, or remotely perhaps of Italian, for he rejoiced in the somewhat fervid name of Gloriani. He was a man of forty. He had been living for years in Paris and in Rome, and he now drove a very pretty trade in sculpture of the ornamental and fantastic sort. In his youth, he had had money but he had spent it recklessly, much of it scandalously, and at twenty-six had found himself obliged to make capital of his talent. This was quite inimitable, and fifteen years of indefatigable exercise had brought it to perfection. Roland admitted its power, though it gave him very little pleasure. What he relished in the man was the extraordinary vivacity and frankness, not to call it the impudence, of his ideas. He had a definite, practical scheme of art, and he knew at least what he meant. In this sense he was solid and complete. There were so many of the aesthetic fraternity who were floundering in unknown seas, without a notion of which way their noses were turned, that Gloriani, conscious and compact, unlimitedly intelligent and consummately clever, dogmatic only as to his own duties, and at once gracefully deferential and profoundly indifferent to those of others, had for Roland a certain intellectual refreshment quite independent of the character of his works. These were considered by most people to belong to a very corrupt, and by many to a positively indecent school. Others thought them tremendously knowing, and paid enormous prices for them, and indeed to be able to point to one of Gloriani's figures in a shady corner of your library was tolerable proof that you were not a fool. Corrupt things they certainly were, in the line of sculpture they were quite the latest fruit of time. It was the artist's opinion that there is no essential difference between beauty and ugliness, that they overlap and intermingle in a quite inextricable manner, that there is no saying where one begins and the other ends, that hideousness grimaces at you suddenly from out of the very bosom of loveliness, and beauty blooms before your eyes in the lap of vileness, that it is a waste of wit to nurse metaphysical distinctions, and a sadly meagre entertainment to caress imaginary lines, that the thing to aim at is the expressive, and the way to reach it is by ingenuity, that for this purpose everything may serve, and that a consummate work is a sort of hotchpotch of the pure and the impure, the graceful and the grotesque. Its prime duty is to amuse, to puzzle, to fascinate, to savour of a complex imagination. Gloriani's statues were florid and meretricious. They looked like magnified goldsmith's work. They were extremely elegant, but they had no charm for Roland. He never bought one, but Gloriani was such an honest fellow, and withal was so deluged with orders, that this made no difference in their friendship. The artist might have passed for a Frenchman. He was a great talker, and a very picturesque one. He was almost bald. He had a small bright eye, a broken nose, and a moustache with waxed ends. When sometimes he received you at his lodging, he introduced you to a lady with a plain face, whom he called Madame Gloriani which she was not. Roland's second guest was also an artist, but of a very different type. His friends called him Sam Singleton. He was an American, and he had been in Rome a couple of years. He painted small landscapes, chiefly in watercolours. Roland had seen one of them in a shop window, had liked it extremely, 
and ascertaining his address had gone to see him, and found him established in a very humble studio near the Piazza Barberini, where apparently fame and fortune had not yet found him out. Rowland took a fancy to him and bought several of his pictures. Singleton made few speeches, but was grateful. Rowland heard afterwards that when he first came to Rome, he painted worthless daubs and gave no promise of talent. Improvement had come, however, hand in hand with patient industry, and his talent, though of a slender and delicate order, was now incontestable. It was as yet but scantily recognized that he had hard work to live. Rowland hung his little watercolors on the parlor wall, and found that as he lived with them, he grew very fond of them. Singleton was a diminutive, dwarfish personage. He looked like a precocious child. He had a high, protuberant forehead, a transparent brown eye, a perpetual smile, an extraordinary expression of modesty and patience. He listened much more willingly than he talked, with a little fixed, grateful grin. He blushed when he spoke, and always offered his ideas in a sidelong fashion, as if the presumption were against them. His modesty set them off, and they were eminently to the point. He was so perfect an example of the little, noiseless, laborious artist, whom chance in the person of a moneyed patron has never taken by the hand, that Rowland would have liked to befriend him by stealth. Singleton had expressed a fervent admiration for Roderick's productions, but had not yet met the young master. Roderick was lounging against the chimney-piece when he came in, and Rowland presently introduced him. The little watercolorist stood with folded hands, blushing, smiling, and looking up at him as if Roderick were himself a statue on a pedestal. Singleton began to murmur something about his pleasure, his admiration. The desire to make his compliments smoothly gave him a kind of grotesque formalism. Roderick looked down at him, surprised, and suddenly burst into a laugh. Singleton paused a moment, and then, with an intenser smile, went on, well, sir, your statues are beautiful all the same. Rowland's two other guests were ladies, and one of them, Miss Blanchard, belonged also to the artistic fraternity. She was an American, she was young, she was pretty, and she had made her way to Rome alone and unaided. She lived alone, or with no other duenna, than a bushy-browed old serving-woman, though indeed she had a friendly neighbor in the person of a certain Madame Grandoni, who in various social emergencies lent her a protecting wing, and had come with her to Rowland's dinner. Miss Blanchard had little money, but she was not above selling her pictures. These represented generally a bunch of dew-sprinkled roses, with the dewdrops very highly finished, or else a wayside shrine and a peasant woman, with her back turned, kneeling before it. She did backs very well, but she was a little weak in faces. Flowers, however, were her specialty, and though her touch was a little old-fashioned and finical, she painted them with remarkable skill. Her pictures were chiefly bought by the English. Rowland had made her acquaintance early in the winter, and as she kept a saddle-horse and rode a great deal, he had asked permission to be her cavalier. In this way they had become almost intimate. Miss Blanchard's name was Augusta. She was slender, pale, and elegant-looking. She had a very pretty head, and brilliant auburn hair, which she braided with classical simplicity. She talked in a sweet, soft voice, used language at times a trifle superfine, and made literary allusions. These had often a patriotic strain, and Rowland had more than once been irritated by her quotations from Mrs. Sigourney and the Corkwoods of Monte Mario, 
and for Mr. Willis among the ruins of Veii. Roland was of a dozen different minds about her, and was half surprised at times to find himself treating it as a matter of serious moment whether he liked her or not. He admired her, and indeed there was something admirable in her combination of beauty and talent, of isolation and tranquil self-support. He used sometimes to go into the little, high-niched, ordinary room which served her as a studio, and find her working at a panel six inches square, at an open casement profiled against the deep blue Roman sky. She received him with a meek-eyed dignity that made her seem like a painted saint on a church window, receiving the daylight in all her being. The breath of reproach passed her by with folded wings. And yet Roland wondered why he did not like her better. If he failed, the reason was not far to seek. There was another woman whom he liked better, an image in his heart which refused to yield precedence. On that evening to which allusion has been made, when Roland was left alone between the starlight and the waves, with the sudden knowledge that Mary Garland was to become another man's wife, he had made, after a while, the simple resolution to forget her. And every day since, like a famous philosopher who wished to abbreviate his mourning for a faithful servant, he had said to himself in substance, Remember to forget Mary Garland. Sometimes it seemed as if he were succeeding, then suddenly, when he was least expecting it, he would find her name inaudibly on his lips, and seem to see her eyes meeting his eyes. All this made him uncomfortable, and seemed to portend a possible discord. Discord was not to his taste. He shrank from imperious passions, and the idea of finding himself jealous of an unsuspecting friend was absolutely repulsive. More than ever, then, the path of duty was to forget Mary Garland, and he cultivated oblivion, as we may say, in the person of Miss Blanchard. Her fine temper, he said to himself, was a trifle cold and conscious, her purity prudish, perhaps, her culture pedantic. But since he was obliged to give up hopes of Mary Garland, Providence owed him a compensation, and he had fits of angry sadness, in which it seemed to him that to attest his right to sentimental satisfaction he would be capable of falling in love with a woman he absolutely detested, if she were the best that came in his way. And what was the use, after all, of bothering about a possible which was only perhaps a dream? Even if Mary Garland had been free, what right had he to assume that he would have pleased her? The actual was good enough. Miss Blanchard had beautiful hair, and if she was a trifle old maidish, there is nothing like matrimony for curing old maidishness. Madame Grandoni, who had formed with the companion of Roland's rides an alliance which might have been called defensive on the part of the former, and attractive on that of Miss Blanchard, was an excessively ugly old lady, highly esteemed in Roman society for her homely benevolence and her shrewd and humorous good sense. She had been the widow of a German archaeologist, who had come to Rome in the early ages as an attaché of the Prussian legation on the Capitoline. Her good sense had been wanting on but a single occasion, that of her second marriage. This occasion was certainly a momentous one, but these, by common consent, are not test cases. A couple of years after her first husband's death, she had accepted the hand and the name of a Neapolitan music-master, ten years younger than herself, and with no fortune but his fiddle-bow. 
The marriage was most unhappy, and the maestro Grandoni was suspected of using the fiddle-bow as an instrument of conjugal correction. He had finally run off with the prima donna assoluta, who, it was to be hoped, had given him a taste of the quality implied in her title. He was believed to be living still, but he had shrunk to a small black spot in Madame Grandoni's life, and for ten years she had not mentioned his name. She wore a light flaxen wig, which was never very artfully adjusted, but this mattered little, as she made no secret of it. She used to say, I was not always so ugly as this. As a young girl I had beautiful golden hair, very much the color of my wig. She had worn from time immemorial an old blue satin dress, and a white crepe shawl embroidered in colors. Her appearance was ridiculous, but she had an interminable Teutonic pedigree, and her manners in every presence were easy and jovial, as became a lady whose ancestor had been cup-bearer to Frederick Barbarossa. Thirty years' observation of Roman society had sharpened her wits, and given her an inexhaustible store of anecdotes, but she had beneath her crumpled bodice a deep-welling fund of Teutonic sentiment, which she communicated only to the objects of her particular favour. Roland had a great regard for her, and she repaid it by wishing him to get married. She never saw him without whispering to him that Augusta Blanchard was just the girl. It seemed to Roland a sort of a foreshadowing of matrimony, to see Miss Blanchard standing gracefully on his hearth-rug and blooming behind the central bouquet at his circular dinner-table. The dinner was very prosperous, and Roderick amply filled his position as hero of the feast. He had always an air of buoyant enjoyment in his work, but on this occasion he manifested a good deal of harmless pleasure in his glory. He drank freely and talked bravely. He leaned back in his chair with his hands in his pockets, and flung open the gates of his eloquence. Singleton sat gazing and listening open-mouthed, as if Apollo in person were talking. Gloriani showed a twinkle in his eye, and an evident disposition to draw Roderick out. Roland was rather regretful, for he knew that theory was not his friend's strong point, and that it was never fair to take his measure from his talk. "'As you have begun with Adam and Eve,' said Gloriani, "'I suppose you are going straight through the Bible.' He was one of the persons who thought Roderick delightfully fresh. "'I may make a David,' said Roderick but I shall not try any more of the Old Testament people. I don't like the Jews. I don't like pendulous noses. David, the boy David, is rather an exception. You can think of him and treat him as a young Greek. Standing forth there on the plain of battle between the contending armies, rushing forward to let fly his stone, he looks like a beautiful runner at the Olympic Games. After that I shall skip to the New Testament. I mean to make a Christ." "'You'll put nothing of the Olympic Games into him, I hope,' said Gloriani. "'Oh, I shall make him very different from the Christ of tradition. More, more—' And Roderick paused a moment to think. This was the first that Roland had heard of his Christ. "'More rationalistic, I suppose,' suggested Miss Blanchard. "'More idealistic,' cried Roderick. "'The perfection of form, you know, to symbolize the perfection of spirit.' "'For a companion piece,' said Miss Blanchard, "'you ought to make a Judas.' Never! I mean never to make anything ugly. The Greeks never made anything ugly, and I'm a Hellenist. I'm not a Hebraist. I've been thinking lately of making a cane, but I should never dream of making him ugly. 
He should be a very handsome fellow, and he should lift up the murderous club with the beautiful movement of the fighters in the Greek friezes who were chopping at their enemies. "'There's no use trying to be a Greek,' said Gloriani. "'If Phidias were to come back, he would recommend you to give it up. I am half Italian and half French, and as a whole a Yankee. What sort of Greek should I make? I think the Judas is a capital idea for a statue.' Much obliged to you, madam, for the suggestion. What an insidious little scoundrel one might make of him, sitting there nursing his money-bag and his treachery. There can be a great deal of expression in a pendulous nose, my dear sir, especially when it is cast in green bronze. Very likely, said Roderick, but it is not the sort of expression I care for. I care only for perfect beauty. There it is, if you want to know it. That's as good a profession of faith as another. In future, so far as my things are not positively beautiful, you may set them down as failures. For me, it's either that or nothing. It's against the taste of the day, I know. We have really lost the faculty to understand beauty in the large, ideal way. We stand like a race with shrunken muscles, staring helplessly at the weights our forefathers easily lifted. But I don't hesitate to proclaim it. I mean to lift them again. I mean to go in for big things. That's my notion of my art. I mean to do things that will be simple and vast and infinite. You'll see if they won't be infinite. Excuse me if I brag a little. All those Italian fellows in the Renaissance used to brag. There was a sensation once common, I am sure, in the human breast, a kind of religious awe in the presence of a marble image, newly created and expressing the human type in superhuman purity. When Phidias and Praxiteles had their statues of goddesses unveiled in the temples of the Aegean, don't you suppose there was a passionate beating of hearts, a thrill of mysterious terror? I mean to bring it back. I mean to thrill the world again. I mean to produce a Juno that will make you tremble, a Venus that will make you swoon. So that, when we come and see you, said Madame Grandoni, we must be sure and bring our smelling-bottles, and pray have a few soft sofas conveniently placed. Phidias and Praxiteles, Miss Blanchard remarked, had the advantage of believing in their goddesses. I insist on believing for myself that the pagan mythology is not a fiction, and that Venus and Juno and Apollo and Mercury used to come down in a cloud into this very city of Rome, where we sit talking nineteenth-century English. Nineteenth-century nonsense, my dear, cried Madame Grandoni. Mr. Hudson may be a new Phidias, but Venus and Juno, that's you and I, arrived to-day in a very dirty cab, and were cheated by the driver, too. "'But, my dear fellow,' objected Gloriani, "'you don't mean to say that you are going to make over in cold blood "'those poor old exploded Apollos and Hebes.' "'It won't matter what you call them,' said Roderick. "'They shall be simply divine forms. "'They shall be beauty. "'They shall be wisdom. "'They shall be power. "'They shall be genius. "'They shall be daring. "'That's all the Greek divinities were.' "'That's rather abstract, you know,' said Miss Blanchard. "'My dear fellow,' cried Gloriani, "'you're delightfully young.' "'I hope you'll not grow any older,' said Singleton, with a flush of sympathy across his large white forehead. "'You can do it if you try.' "'Then there are all the forces and mysteries and elements of nature,' Roderick went on. "'I mean to do the morning. I mean to do the night. I mean to do the ocean and the mountains, the moon and the west wind. I mean to make a magnificent statue of America.' 
America, the mountains, the moon, said Gloriani, you'll find it rather hard, I'm afraid, to compress such subjects into classic forms. Oh, there's a way, cried Roderick, and I shall think it out. My figures shall make no contortions, but they shall mean a tremendous deal. I am sure there are contortions enough in Michelangelo, said Madame Grandoni. Perhaps you don't approve of him. Oh, Michelangelo was not me, said Roderick with sublimity. There was a great laugh, but after all Roderick had done some fine things. Roland had bidden one of the servants bring him a small portfolio of prints, and had taken out a photograph of Roderick's little statue of the youth drinking. It pleased him to see his friend sitting there in radiant ardor, defending idealism against so knowing an apostle of corruption as Gloriani, and he wished to help the elder artist to be confuted. He silently handed him the photograph. "'Bless me!' cried Gloriani. "'Did he do this?' "'Ages ago,' said Roderick. Gloriani looked at the photograph a long time with evident admiration. "'It's deucedly pretty,' he said at last. "'But, my dear young friend, you can't keep this up.' "'I shall do better,' said Roderick. "'You will do worse. You will become weak. You will have to take to violence, to contortions, to romanticism and self-defense. This sort of thing is like a man trying to lift himself by the seat of his trousers. He may stand on tiptoe, but he can't do more. Here you stand on tiptoe, very gracefully, I admit. But you can't fly. There's no use trying. My America shall answer you, said Roderick, shaking toward him a tall glass of champagne and drinking it down. Singleton had taken the photograph and was poring over it with a little murmur of delight. Was this done in America? he asked. In a square white wooden house at Northampton, Massachusetts, Roderick answered. Dear old white wooden houses, said Miss Blanchard. If you could do as well as this there, said Singleton, blushing and smiling, one might say that really you had only to lose by coming to Rome. Mallet is to blame for that, said Roderick, but I am willing to risk the loss. The photograph had been passed to Madame Grandoni. It reminds me, she said, of the things a young man used to do whom I knew years ago when I first came to Rome. He was a German, a pupil of Overbeck and a votary of spiritual art. He used to wear a black velvet tunic and a very low shirt-collar. He had a neck like a sickly crane, and let his hair grow down to his shoulders. His name was Herr Schafgans. He never painted anything so profane as a man taking a drink but his figures were all of the simple and slender and angular pattern, and nothing if not innocent, like this one of yours. He would not have agreed with Gloriani any more than you. He used to come and see me very often, and in those days I thought his tunic and his long neck infallible symptoms of genius. His talk was all of gilded aureoles and beatific visions. He lived on weak wine and biscuits, and wore a lock of St. Somebody's hair in a little bag round his neck. If he was not a Beato Angelico, it was not his own fault. I hope with all my heart that Mr. Hudson will do the fine things he talks about, but he must bear in mind the history of dear Mr. Schafgans as a warning against high-flown pretensions. One fine day this poor young man fell in love with a Roman model, though she had never sat to him, I believe, for she was a buxom, bold-faced, high-coloured creature, and he painted none but pale, sickly women. He offered to marry her, and she looked at him from head to foot, gave a shrug, and consented. 
but he was ashamed to set up his menage in Rome. They went to Naples, and there, a couple of years afterwards, I saw him. The poor fellow was ruined. His wife used to beat him, and he had taken to drinking. He wore a ragged black coat, and he had a blotchy red face. Madame had turned washerwoman, and used to make him go and fetch the dirty linen. His talent had gone heaven knows where. He was getting his living by painting views of Vesuvius and eruption on the little boxes they sell at Sorrento. "'Moral, don't fall in love with a buxom Roman model,' said Roderick. "'I'm much obliged to you for your story, but I don't mean to fall in love with any one.' Gloriani had possessed himself of the photograph again, and was looking at it curiously. "'It's a happy bit of youth,' he said, "'but you can't keep it up. You can't keep it up.' The two sculptors pursued their discussion after dinner in the drawing-room. Roland left them to have it out in a corner, where Roderick's eve stood over them in the shaded lamplight, in vague white beauty, like the guardian angel of the young idealist. Singleton was listening to Madame Grandoni, and Roland took his place on the sofa, near Miss Blanchard. They had a good deal of familiar, desultory talk. Every now and then Madame Grandoni looked around at them. Miss Blanchard at last asked Roland certain questions about Roderick, who he was, where he came from, whether it was true, as she had heard, that Roland had discovered him and brought him out at his own expense. Roland answered her questions. To the last he gave a vague affirmative. Finally, after a pause, looking at him, "'You're very generous,' Miss Blanchard said. The declaration was made with a certain richness of tone, but it brought to Roland's sense neither delight nor confusion. He had heard the words before. He suddenly remembered the grave sincerity with which Miss Garland had uttered them, as he strolled with her in the woods the day of Roderick's picnic. They had pleased him then. Now he asked Miss Blanchard whether she would have some tea. When the two ladies withdrew, he attended them to their carriage. Coming back to the drawing-room, he paused outside the open door. He was struck by the group formed by the three men. They were standing before Roderick's statue of Eve and the young sculptor had lifted up the lamp and was showing different parts of it to his companions. He was talking ardently, and the lamplight covered his head and face. Roland stood looking on, for the group struck him with its picturesque symbolism. Roderick, bearing the lamp and glowing in its radiant circle, seemed the beautiful image of a genius which combined sincerity with power. Gloriani, with his head on one side, pulling his long moustache and looking keenly from half-closed eyes at the lighted marble, represented art with a worldly motive, skill unleavened by faith, the mere base maximum of cleverness. Poor little Singleton, on the other side, with his hands behind him, his head thrown back and his eyes following devoutly the course of Roderick's elucidation, might pass for an embodiment of aspiring candor, with feeble wings to rise on. In all this, Roderick's was certainly the beau role. Gloriani turned to Roland as he came up and pointed back with his thumb to the statue, with a smile half sardonic, half good-natured. "'A pretty thing, a devilish pretty thing,' he said. "'It's as fresh as the foam in the milk-pail. He can do it once, he can do it twice, he can do it at a stretch half a dozen times, but, but—' He was returning to his form of refrain, but Roland intercepted him. "'Oh, he will keep it up,' he said, smiling. "'I will answer for him.' Gloriani was not encouraging, but Roderick had listened, smiling. 
He was floating unperturbed on the tide of his deep self-confidence. Now, suddenly, however, he turned with a flash of irritation in his eye, and demanded in a ringing voice, "'In a word, then, you prophesy that I am to fail?' Gloriani answered imperturbably, patting him kindly on the shoulder. "'My dear fellow, passion burns out, inspiration runs to seed. Some fine day every artist finds himself sitting face to face with his lump of clay, with his empty canvas, with his sheet of blank paper, waiting in vain for the revelation to be made, for the muse to descend. He must learn to do without the muse. When the fickle jade forgets the way to your studio, don't waste any time in tearing your hair and meditating on suicide. Come round and see me, and I will show you how to console yourself." "'If I break down,' said Roderick passionately, "'I shall stay down. If the muse deserts me, she shall at least have her infidelity on her conscience.' "'You have no business,' Rowland said to Gloriani, "'to talk lightly of the muse in this company. Mr. Singleton, too, has received pledges from her, which place her constancy beyond suspicion.' And he pointed out on the wall, nearby, two small landscapes by the modest watercolorist. The sculptor examined them with deference, and Singleton himself began to laugh nervously. He was trembling with hope that the great Gloriani would be pleased. "'Yes, these are fresh, too,' Gloriani said. "'Extraordinarily fresh. How old are you?' Twenty-six, sir,' said Singleton. "'For twenty-six they are famously fresh. They must have taken you a long time. You work slowly.' "'Yes, unfortunately, I work very slowly. One of them took me six weeks, the other two months.' "'Upon my word, the muse pays you long visits.' And Gloriani turned and looked from head to foot at so unlikely an object of her favours. Singleton smiled and began to wipe his forehead very hard. "'Oh, you,' said the sculptor, "'you'll keep it up.' A week after his dinner-party, Roland went into Roderick's studio and found him sitting before an unfinished piece of work, with a hanging head and a heavy eye. He could have fancied that the fatal hour foretold by Gloriani had struck. Roderick rose with a sombre yawn and flung down his tools. "'It's no use,' he said. "'I give it up.' "'What is it?' "'I have struck a shallow. I have been sailing bravely, but for the last day or two my keel has been crunching the bottom.' "'A difficult place,' Roland asked, with a sympathetic inflection, looking vaguely at the roughly modelled figure. "'Oh, it's not the poor clay,' Roderick answered. "'The difficult place is here,' and he struck a blow on his heart. "'I don't know what's the matter with me. Nothing comes. All of a sudden I hate things. My old things look ugly. Everything looks stupid.' Roland was perplexed. He was in the situation of a man who has been riding a blood horse at an even, elastic gallop, and of a sudden feels him stumble and balk. As yet, he reflected, he had seen nothing but the sunshine of genius. He had forgotten that it has its storms. Of course it had. And he felt a flood of comradeship rise in his heart, which would float them both safely through the worst weather. "'Why, you're tired,' he said. "'Of course you're tired. You have a right to be.' "'Do you think I have a right to be?' Roderick asked, looking at him. "'Unquestionably, after all you have done.' "'Well, then, right or wrong, I am tired. I certainly have done a fair winter's work. I want a change.' Roland declared that it was certainly high time that they should be leaving Rome. They would go north and travel. They would go to Switzerland, to Germany, to Holland, to England. 
Roderick assented, his eye brightened, and Rowland talked of a dozen things they might do. Roderick walked up and down. He seemed to have something to say which he hesitated to bring out. He hesitated so rarely that Rowland wondered, and at last asked him what was on his mind. Roderick stopped before him, frowning a little. "'I have such unbounded faith in your good will,' he said, "'that I believe nothing I can say would offend you.' "'Try it,' said Rowland. "'Well, then, I think my journey will do me more good if I take it alone. I needn't say I prefer your society to that of any man living. For the last six months it has been everything to me. But I have a perpetual feeling that you are expecting something of me, that you are measuring my doings by a terrifically high standard. You are watching me. I don't want to be watched. I want to go my own way, to work when I choose and to loaf when I choose. It is not that I don't know what I owe you. It is not that we are not friends. It is simply that I want a taste of absolutely unrestricted freedom. Therefore, I say, let us separate. Roland shook him by the hand. Willingly. Do as you desire. I shall miss you, and I shall venture to believe you'll pass some lonely hours. But I have only one request to make, that if you get into trouble of any kind whatever, you will immediately let me know. They began their journey, however, together, and crossed the Alps side by side, muffled in one rug, on top of the St. Gotthard coach. Roland was going to England to pay some promised visits. His companion had no plan save to ramble through Switzerland at Germany, as fancy guided him. He had money now that would outlast the summer. When it was spent, he would come back to Rome and make another statue. At a little mountain village, by the way, Roderick declared that he would stop. He would scramble about a little in the high places, and doze in the shade of the pine forests. The coach was changing horses. The two young men walked along the village street, picking their way between dunghills, breathing the light cool air, and listening to the plash of the fountain and the tinkle of cattle bells. The coach overtook them, and then Roland, as he prepared to mount, felt an almost overmastering reluctance. "'Say the word,' he exclaimed, "'and I will stop, too.' Roderick frowned. "'Ah, you don't trust me. You don't think I'm able to take care of myself. That proves that I was right in feeling as if I were watched.' "'Watched, my dear fellow,' said Roland. "'I hope you may never have anything worse to complain of than being watched in the spirit in which I watch you. But I will spare you even that. Good-bye.' Standing in his place as the coach rolled away, he looked back at his friend lingering by the roadside. A great snow mountain behind Roderick was beginning to turn pink in the sunset. The young man waved his hat, still looking grave. Roland settled himself in his place, reflecting, after all, that this was a salubrious beginning of independence. He was among forests and glaciers, leaning on the pure bosom of nature. And then, and then, was it not in itself a guarantee against folly to be engaged to Mary Garland? End of chapter 3b